happening, food eaters? Welcome back to the Food Labels Revealed podcast. I'm your host, Mel Weinstein, humbly claiming to be the self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is episode number 60. Today, I've decided to do a news show. Every so often, I report on significant news stories from the world of processed foods. Many of those articles I post on the Facebook page, which can be found under the name Food Labels Revealed Podcast. Take note. Several years ago, someone beat me to the punch and created a page called Food Labels Revealed, which has nothing to do with this podcast. So the four stories reviewed in today's program all came from recent posts on the Facebook page, but as usual... I'm not just going to read these articles, but I'll summarize and provide commentary when necessary. These kinds of news stories often don't get covered by the major news outlets or in the print media. They make it pushed to the back of an issue. However, sometimes the articles provide good and useful information, which you might want to tuck in the back of your head for future access. This program is entitled On Saltiness, Sweetness, Toxicness, and fatness. Let's start out with Salt, a member of the infamous ultra-processed food triad whose other members include sugar and oil. Those key ingredients are greatly responsible for the addictive power of junk and fast foods. This article, published on January 31st, comes from the Washington Post and was written by Marlene Simmons. It deals with the overabundant supply of salt in the typical American diet. We know that nutrition facts labels don't report the amount of salt in a food product. What we do see is the sodium content per serving. Since most of the sodium we consume in processed foods comes from salt, there is an approximate correlation between the two. The latest report of the USDA's Dietary Guidelines for Americans, issued last December, recommends that we eat less than 2,300 milligrams of sodium per day, a guideline which has been around for many years now. By the way, there was a major faux pas in the Washington Post article which listed 2,300 milligrams of salt instead of sodium. Now, to convert that amount of sodium to salt, multiply the sodium content by 2.54. So, that means if we take 2,300 milligrams times 2.54, we get 5,842 milligrams, or 5.84 grams of salt. If you are not metrically inclined, uh, that amount is a little more than a teaspoon. If you enjoy cooking like me, uh, a teaspoon of salt doesn't sound like very much for a whole day. I often add a whole teaspoon of salt to a dish I'm making, but of course, there are multiple servings in a dish, so I don't consume that much salt at one sitting. But if you're eating several meals a day plus snacks, you can see how the salt content could add up. Every once in a while, I'll get a craving for a salty snack. Admit it, doesn't that happen to you too? Just last week, a box of Triscuit crackers grabbed my attention while strolling down a grocery aisle. The pull was so strong that I I had to stop and check out the various selections. I convinced myself that I hadn't had Triscuits in a long time and deserved a special treat. 
Knowing myself pretty well, I realized in that moment the likelihood of downing that whole box in one day, and it turned out that I was absolutely correct. Like most crunchy snacks, Triscuit crackers have a goodly amount of salt in them. In fact, salt is listed as the third ingredient. The sodium content is 150 milligrams per serving of six crackers. Given that there are eight servings in a box, my total sodium intake was 1,200 milligrams. Multiplying by the conversion factor 2.54 gives a total of 3,048 milligrams of salt, or a little over half a teaspoon. That didn't put me over the daily limit for salt, but then again, I had a lot more than just those crackers to eat on that day. Plus, whatever I put on those crackers certainly had some salt. I, I didn't do a daily count, but it was highly probable that I greatly exceeded the daily limit. I'm not alone. The article cites the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as saying that the average American consumes nearly 3,400 milligrams, 50% more than is recommended. What makes a dietary recommendation tough for most people is the fact that they eat out and also eat junk food. When we eat out, we don't know how much salt is in the food. And worse, some people add extra salt to their food at the dining table. And as I said earlier, salt, along with sugar and fat, is a common ingredient in junk foods. The article states that, quote, more than 70% of salt in the American diet comes from packaged and prepared foods, end quote. Research studies suggest that excess sodium narrows and stiffens blood vessels, thus raising blood pressure, which can trigger adverse events like heart attacks and strokes. As with most nutritional recommendations, the daily sodium amount is not without its detractors. In recent years, there have been several studies challenging the 2300 milligram limit and saying that even higher amounts, like 3000 to 5000 milligrams, are not detrimental. However, the majority, vast majority, of scientific papers in the medical literature over many decades has concluded that the current sodium recommendation is the wisest one. So, what's a food eater to do? Stop eating junk food? Stop eating out? Well, yes, a resounding yes, because that's the only way you're going to know how much sodium or salt you consume every day. On the other hand, is there a government solution? No, not right now, but there are some consumer advocates like the Institute of Medicine that are requesting the FDA to regulate the amount of sodium in processed foods and reduce the levels over a specified time period. In 2016, the FDA worked on voluntary guidelines for the food industry, but they were never finalized. Fifteen years ago, the United Kingdom instituted a voluntary sodium reduction plan, which appears to have worked in reducing rates of strokes and heart attacks. The reason for the, the success, according to Dr. Freeman, co-chair of the Nutrition and Lifestyle Work Group for the American College of Cardiology, he says, quote, when you are used to eating large quantities of salt, your salt thermostat adjusts upward so people don't realize when they are consuming large quantities, it doesn't taste salty. After a couple of weeks without any added salt, you will notice how salty your food has been, end quote. 
From salt, let's move on to sugar. The online media site Medical News Today on March 21st published an article entitled Even Modest Consumption of Added Sugar May Affect the Liver. This was written by Beth Jojak. First off, let's clarify what added sugar means. As regards nutritional facts labels, that's a relatively new term. The FDA now requires food manufacturers not only to list the total sugar amount, as in the past, but they must also list sugar that has been intentionally added in the making of the product. For example, Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia ice cream, a fan favorite, has a total sugar content of 31 grams per serving, and the added sugar is 26 grams. So that means the difference, or 5 grams, is sugars that is naturally found in the non-sweetener ingredients, namely the cherries and juice concentrates in the product. The rest of the sugar comes from sweetener ingredients like liquid sugar, which is just a mix of sugar and water, and straight sugar. The purpose of this article is to review a study that revealed the consumption of moderate amounts of some sugars could double the production of fat in the liver. Here's a quote. New research provides further evidence of the dangers of consuming sugar, proposing that ingesting even moderate amounts of the substance may lead to a change in a person's metabolism. Researchers at the Medical University of Graz, Austria, and the University of Zurich, and University Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland, recently reported their findings in the Journal of Hepatology. End quote. Let's pause for a moment here and digest this statement. When added sugars in foods are consumed, they get broken down to glucose and fructose during the digestive process and then get absorbed into the bloodstream. Glucose, as a source of energy, gets taken up by muscle cells and metabolized. However, excess glucose in the blood may get shunted off to the liver, where, through a complicated process called lipogenesis, can produce triglycerides, the chemical class known commonly as fats. Hence, a buildup of triglycerides in the liver causes fatty liver. Not good, since there is a link between fatty liver disease and type 2 diabetes. The World Health Organization, WHO, has recommended a daily limit of added sugars as 25 grams or 6 teaspoons. Sadly, as of 2015, the average American was consuming 126 grams per day, which is about five times the recommendation or is equivalent to five pints of the Cherry Garcia ice cream. A study was done between 2013 and 2016 to measure the effects of a moderate consumption of added sugar. The moderate amount was chosen as 80 grams per day. Quote, the researchers initially had the participants abstain from sugar-sweetened beverages for four weeks. The participants then started drinking sugar-sweetened drinks containing either fructose, sucrose, or glucose three times per day. The participants who drank beverages sweetened with fructose 
had fat production twice as high as those who drank beverages sweetened with glucose and those who abstained from sugar-sweetened drinks. A particularly surprising finding by the researchers was that sucrose, or table sugar, the form of sugar humans most commonly consume, boosted fat synthesis slightly more than the same amount of fructose. End quote. The condition of fatty liver disease damages the liver such that its ability to remove toxins and its ability to produce bile for digesting fats is diminished. In turn, additional disorders may develop. There are no prescription drugs for treating the disease. If fatty liver disease worsens, there could be a scarring of the liver called cirrhosis, which can be very unpleasant and potentially lead to death. The ways to minimize fatty liver disease is through diet and regular exercise. In terms of diet, intake of the following foods may help. Garlic, foods rich in omega-3 fatty acids like walnuts, flaxseed, and some seafood. Broccoli, soy foods, and the beverages coffee and green tea. Foods to avoid would be, of course, those with added sugars, but additionally alcohol, refined grains, fried foods, salty foods, and meat, which is high in saturated fat. Next, I turn my attention to a little-known toxin in food that doesn't come from the food itself, but is actually a contaminant. The third article comes from the online magazine Business Insider, published on February 25th and authored by Madeline Diamond. The title is long but provocative. Annie's promises to remove a chemical from its mac and cheese that's linked to infertility, cancer, and learning difficulties. So, what are they referring to? First of all, the Annie's Company, started in 1989, was a grassroots enterprise founded by Annie Withy, who wanted to bring healthy processed foods to the marketplace. Their first product was mac and cheese in a box. Later, they embraced organic ingredients as well as actively developing an environmental consciousness. Their mission statement reads as follows. We believe food has the power to impact the future of the planet and everybody on it. From partnering with the farmers who grow our food to thoughtfully choosing the packaging that our food is shipped in, we've always had your family and our planet in mind. Learn why we believe organic is better, how we make our foods, and how together we're making a bigger impact. End quote. The reason why Annie's and other companies are being scrutinized and criticized is due to the cheese in their products. In 2017, the Coalition for Safer Food published a study which revealed the presence of toxic chemicals called phthalates in macaroni and cheese products. What was particularly alarming was that the toxin was four times more concentrated in the processed cheese than a natural cheese that it comes from. Obviously, there was something amiss in the manufacturing process for the powdered cheese that gave rise to greater contamination than was found in traditional cheese making. So what is the big deal about phthalates? First of all, 
Phthalates are a class of synthetic compounds which are used to make plastics. They function as plasticizers, which are substances that are added to plastics, particularly polyvinyl chloride, uh, known as PVC, to increase flexibility, transparency, durability, and longevity. Of course, PVC is one of the most common plastics used by industry and shows up in a multitude of products like pipes and processing equipment. On the downside, these chemicals are known as endocrine disruptors because they affect the normal functions of hormones in the human body. Like hormones, very tiny amounts are needed to affect changes. They can enter the bloodstream and interfere with sexual development in infants and sexual behavior in adults. Ultimately, they can cause cancer, adversely affect fertility, give rise to birth defects in children, and may cause premature birth. The primary source of phthalate contamination is in the food supply, particularly in fatty foods. How do they get into the food? Well, if a food like cheese is processed using machines with plastic parts, the phthalates may migrate into the food as it transits through the equipment. At this time, the FDA has not banned the presence of phthalates in food manufacturing plants. Independently, some food companies like Annie's have vowed to eliminate the toxin from their products. Likely, alternative plasticizers will need to be found to replace the phthalates, but that could take a long time. Lastly, I'm going to discuss an article which I find very interesting, but also very disturbing. The article was published by Food Navigator USA on January 25th and authored by Elaine Watson. The title is about a paragraph long, so I'm not going to read it here. Let's just get right into the contents. A new startup company called BioLumen, sponsored by the PepsiCo Greenhouse Program, was co-founded by Dr. Robert Lustig, a pediatric endocrinologist and neuroendocrinologist, as well as an outspoken critic of the processed food industry. I've mentioned Dr. Lustig several times on this podcast. I've really liked his views on junk food, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and other lifestyle diseases. He taught me that weight gain is not simply the result of too many calories consumed versus calories burned, but actually it's a complicated interplay of digestion, hormonal processes, and the various organs involved in metabolism. His explanation of the biochemical pathways associated with weight gain and the development of associated metabolic diseases have made sense to me. He has written a number of books on these subjects, two of which I have read. One's called Fat Chance and the other The Hacking of the American Mind. Lustig's company, BioLumen, has come up with a new food ingredient composed of naturally occurring polysaccharides that are able to encapsulate fats and sugars in the stomach, then carry them through the small intestine where they would normally be digested and absorbed, and then deliver them to the large intestine. In the colon, the particles would be broken down by the microbiome producing beneficial short-chain fatty acids, and the remainder would get eliminated as body waste. 
The net result would be a reduction in calorie or energy uptake. The new ingredient could be taken as a supplement or added to existing foods. Here's a quote from the article. Biolumin can be incorporated in tasty small snacks to be eaten during a meal that would export to the rest of the foods in the stomach their sugar and fat absorbing properties. Or you could include it in a lower dosage like 3% in prepackaged foods such as Nutella, chocolates, jams, dressings, cookies, and breads. That 3% of biolumin inside would be enough to wrap them in insoluble fibers once in the stomach. The intestine will see many more fibers and many less sugars and fats. End quote. As yet, clinical trials have not been conducted on humans, so don't expect to see this product on the shelf anytime soon. How much consumed sugar could get eliminated using the BioLumen product? It's estimated that for every one gram of BioLumen consumed, there could be five grams of sugar removed from the digestive process. Scaling that up means that six grams of BioLumen could lasso 30 grams of sugar. Now, if the modern intake of sugar by Americans is roughly 80 grams per day, that dosage of biolumin could potentially eliminate 38% of consumed sugar. That amount would equate to a large weight loss over a year's time, assuming that the daily food intake remained fairly constant. Now, biolumin also removes fat, so that would add an additional weight loss. So, What's not to like about this future miracle additive? Well, for one thing, ever since the dawn of the obesity epidemic in this country, entrepreneurs and savvy business people have been looking for a magic bullet, aka diet pills, to make people skinny. It's also the holy grail for pharmaceutical companies. Drugs.com lists 36 different medications for obesity control, and most of them require a prescription. If any of these were truly successful, wouldn't we be seeing or hearing about them with their names spread all over the headlines of every paper, magazine, and online news media website? Historically, the following chemicals have been touted for their ability to affect weight loss. Amphetamines. Aminorex fumarate, ephedra, remember that? That's a combination of ephedrine and caffeine, fenfluramine, subutramine, fenfen, DMAA, as well as various herbal supplements like ally, that's spelled A L L I. That's just a small subset of diet drugs. Or supplements. There, there have been many attempts to treat obesity with a magic pill. All have failed either due to a lack of effectiveness or severe side effects or both. If you're of a certain age, you might remember the product manufactured by the Frito-Lay company called Wow Chips, which were introduced to consumers in 1998. The key ingredient in the chips was Olestra, invented by Procter & Gamble. Olestra was a non-digestible synthetic oil and really knocked down the calories in chips as a fat replacer. However, after initial success, the WOW chips were discontinued due to multiple complaints of abdominal cramping, 
diarrhea, anal leakage, yes, I did say anal leakage, and other GI problems. Sarcastically, consumers of WoW chips would exclaim, WOW, while sitting on the toilet. So, why did I find this article about BioLumen disturbing? To me, it seems like another food gimmick, another magic pill, and the newest player in the industry to address the obesity epidemic. And I'm particularly disturbed that Dr. Robert Lustig, a scientist that I have admired and respected, is involved in this potential folly. We'll wait and see, but I predict that the BioLumen product will bring with it a host of undesirable side effects. To end the program, I want to share something that I learned recently that ties into two of the subjects covered today. I'm currently reading the book, The Case Against Sugar, by the noted science journalist Gary Taubes. He's a very good writer and thoroughly researches his topics, but I certainly disagree with his views on carbohydrates. Taubes is an avid advocate of the keto diet, which I think sits on the edge of dietetic reason. For me, it makes abundant sense that nature provides mammals with three kinds of macromolecules for our nourishment, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. To dis one over the other seems unnatural to me and defies the types of diets that humans have adopted for tens of thousands of years, particularly the last 3,000 years. But when it comes to refined carbohydrates, white flour, corn syrup, sugar, etc., that is man-made foodstuffs, I agree with Taubes that those kinds of foods should have a very limited place in a healthy diet. So getting to the point... In the book, Taubes mentions that a pinch of salt enhances the sweetness of sugary foods. I had not heard that before, so I took a closer look. In the online magazine called Gizmodo, an article published in March of 2011 addresses this observation. There is a sugar sensor in the mouth called SGLT1, which transports glucose into a tasty cell only when sodium from salt is present and that process triggers the cell to register sweetness. These kinds of findings help to explain why the combination of salt, sugar, and fat found in junk foods is so attractive to people. Those components don't act independently but enhance each other. Hey, food eaters, that's it for today's program. I hope you enjoyed it. By the way, I had some good news this week. The giant and popular media app Pandora has uploaded FLR to their platform, so this podcast continues to spread its wings over the Internet. Until later, remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is called Scheming, composed by Kevin McLeod.